Hey Q, how are you? I'm very well, Mr. Jamin. How are you? <laughs> Doing well. <laughs> it's Michael's birthday. I know. It feels so good that it's his birthday. It's I know. such a happy day. It's such a happy time of the year. It's such a time for celebration and to catch up with your MJ mates and just get some Michael on. That's exactly right. A couple of the um, anniversaries we mark each year do have that sort of, um, you know, negative sort of flavor about them in June. So it's great to be back here celebrating Michael's life and all the amazing things he accomplished. And the fact that we lived in his time is such a special thing for me, like still scratching my head and just so grateful that I lived in his time. Yeah, every once in a while, I realize that as well, just how lucky we were and or are, I should say. And uh, actually, last night, I, I ended up watching private home movies with, with my wife and and we just absolutely loved it. It was the first time she'd seen it. She just just loved it. What a great show that is. Yeah, that is the best. That is the best. We've got something pretty cool today to share with everyone, haven't we? Yeah, we do. We've got an interview with one of Michael's chief collaborators, uh, an amazing choreographer by the name of Vincent Patterson. He uh, has a documentary that is titled The Man Behind the Throne. And I think that's a really accurate way of describing him. He, he's a guy that, that often isn't in the limelight around Michael's career, but uh, is somebody that had an, a crucial, crucial role in the, in the visual aspects of a lot of Michael's art. And a huge footprint in pop culture. I believe so. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I guess we should just get to the show. Let's do it. The following is a presentation from the MJ cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's, that's one of my favorite things. I love you! <laughs> I love my fans. Just simply Michael Jackson. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm Q, and I'm here today with my co-host, Jamin Bull. Now, when people talk about Michael Jackson's career, names often mentioned are studio geniuses, Barry Gordy, Quincy Jones, and Bruce Swedean. For me, a name that should certainly be mentioned right alongside and of just as much importance is choreographer and director Vincent Patterson. Yeah, Vincent Patterson began his career with Michael working as an assistant choreographer and lead dancer on the Beat It and Thriller short films before continuing on to ideate and choreograph the timeless masterpiece of film Smooth Criminal. Key to other visual masterpieces such as Black or White, The Way You Make Me Feel, Dirty Diana and Blood on the Dance Floor was Vincent Patterson. Yet his collaborative efforts didn't stop with short films. He was also instrumental in Michael's live performances and his iconic status in pop culture. From directing and choreographing the Bad World Tour to Michael's iconic Super Bowl performance and also his MTV 10th anniversary special, Vincent was Michael's chief performance collaborator. And today, we're here to discuss his story. Vincent, 
thank you so much for joining us on the MJ Cast. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. What a nice introduction. That's very sweet. It's sort of like my past flashing before my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Such a scratch of the surface, though, because you've worked with so many incredible artists. We'd be here for two days straight just listing the people that you've collaborated and worked with. That I've had the great opportunity to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe a week. Who knows? <laughs> really, <laughs> feel feel free to drop a few names out now. So you've worked with you've worked with Madonna. I'm going to say you've worked with Miss Piggy, which is also very cool. It was very true. Uh, oh, so many wonderful people across the board. That's why I enjoy my life because I get to be in the acting world as much as the dance world. So, you know, crazy those old people that you know we remember or see pictures of, like Betty Davis and Olivia De Havilland and Lucille Ball. Those crazy women, and um, you know, to all the pop stars of the '80s from. Diana Ross to Olivia Newton-John, Billy Joel, Lionel Richie, all of the Beatles except for John. Oh, my gosh. It just goes on and on and on. Sometimes I, Antonio Banderas, of course, uh, Evita, the movie, and all of those crazy people that were in the birdcage. Robert <laughs> Williams, Nathan Lane, Diane Weiss, Gene Hackman. It's just I, I, I can't believe that. It's me, you know, it's I, I, I sort of feel separated from it all because I was just this kid from kind of nowheresville by the Delaware River filled with oil refineries. And, you know, my life has been so fulfilled artistically and coming from that environment, I never had any idea that this is what was going to go on in my life. Now, so. you once received a, I guess you could call it, call it a concert review from Pope John Paul II. <laughs> you know what's funny? On the television the other night, I don't know what film it was on, but it was some horror movie that was coming on, and, and it was preceded by a quote from Pope John Paul II, and it said something about the devil, watch out for the devil because the devil lives in the world. So you're absolutely right. This man must have been devil crazy because, yes, that was my best review ever from the Pope uh, in regards to the direction and choreography of the Blonde Ambition Tour that I had released Satan back into the world. And I thought, oh, my God, what kind of power do I have? (laughs) (laughs) I'm a guy who was directing shit and choreographing things and having a good time. And here, all the while, little did I know I was releasing Satan back in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Very powerful. (laughs) You never know, you know. I just had to bring that up. I remember that seeing that in the trailer to your film, and I was like, I need to mention that because that is not many people can can say that as a claim to fame. So true. Wow. So, so you mentioned sort of um, growing up in you know near the river and Delaware. Like, what are your what is your story? Where did you begin? What are your earliest memories of dance and dancing? Well, I don't have young memories of dance because I didn't really dance until I was 24. But, um, wow. you know, I, 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 you know, I had a rough young life and it was quite difficult. And so I needed to find an escape. I was the eldest of five kids and I knew if I didn't find something to do, I was probably going to kill myself or something. But I happened to get into the theater, you know, when I was around 
14 years old and I loved it. You know, I loved being able to act and, and get into these characters that took me so far away from my own reality. And I did that through high school and I did very well in high school. I was able to go to college. We were a poor family. I, my family was never able to pay for it, but I did it through financial scholarships. And because I had high scholastic marks, I, I'd been a brainiac in college, in high school. So I went there. I was going to be a lawyer for some reason. I thought maybe that would be a good way to make money. But, you know, like an idiot, I stumbled into the theater and uh, wound up becoming an actor and a director. And uh, it was after that I went to school in Dickinson College in Pennsylvania, which was a very beautiful place, old, old institution, very beautiful. Then I went on to Arizona because I had been acting in Philadelphia in a play by Jean Genet. And I decided I wanted to go someplace warm. I hated the cold. The whole time I was a kid, I kept saying, you know, when I grew up, I'm going to California. Nobody in my family had ever been like 15 miles away from where we lived. So everybody thought I was out of my mind. But <laughs> I got in a car and I started driving and I wound up in Arizona, Tucson, Arizona in the summer. And it was like 85 degrees. I don't know what that translates for you guys. What, like 23 or something like that? I, I don't know. But yeah. It was beautiful, nonetheless, <laughs> in January, which for us is our winter, you know. So I stayed there, and every day as I was going to work, I kept passing this ballet studio, and I thought, you know, I've just been a theater mole. Somebody, I've never really exercised. I need to exercise. I need to do something. So I wandered into this ballet studio and said, do you have classes for adults? And the lady looked at me and said, no, we don't, but we have kind of a teenage class. So I thought, what the heck, let me do it. So I took this teenage ballet class and having been an actor, I would get these books out of the library of say, Nureyev or Balanchine, Brizhnikov, yeah, Balanchine's work too. And I would imagine when I went into the ballet class, cause I was really bad, that I would be this character. And when I approached the movement from the character, because I'd been an actor, I started to, my body started to understand the language of movement. And that was kind of how I began. And I was 24 when I started. And by 28, I had decided I wanted to do this for real. And I moved to LA. And that was a big change for my life. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for walking us through your early history there. Um, would you be able to talk to us about some of your early inspirations in dance? Well, you know, not coming from the dance world, uh, dance wasn't something that inspired me. Uh, theater was what inspired me. Films were what inspired me. Art inspired me. Going to art museums inspired me. Great photography inspired me. I had already been a, an adult before I came into the dance world. And having come from where I came from, nobody danced. Nobody even thought about dance. In fact, if you probably said you went to a dance class, you'd have your legs broken. You know, it's like <laughs> you really, so dance was not part of anybody's life where I came from. Trust me. Anyway, it was more like you know, working in the oil refineries or working in the funeral homes or the bowling alleys or the pizza parlors. That's kind of where I grew up. But a real, um, a real Billy Elliot. You got it, babe. That's it. It was it was very much like Billy Elliot, except that I didn't see any dance classes when I was 12 years old. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I am, um, 
you know, the first real dance that I ever saw was Alvin Ailey's company. And I saw an exquisite black dancer, female dancer named Judith Jameson, performed a dance that Alvin Ailey had choreographed called Cry. And she wore a white dress and it was just a solo. And I was in Philadelphia visiting my family. And it was just something that I couldn't believe. It was so beautiful. It touched me so deeply. And that kind of put me on the beginning path of sort of what is this dance thing? After that, I started looking at some old musicals because my family was never a fan of musicals on television or anything like that. And we certainly didn't go to the theater. We didn't even know where a theater was. So I started to watch old movies like uh, Fred Astaire movies and Gene Kelly movies. And I thought those were really fascinating, a lot of them. And Bob Fosse's work on, on fil- or those films from the 40s and 50s. And, and I liked the stuff that he started to do, he and Jack Cole with... Marilyn Monroe and uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, all all of that became very interesting to me. And when I started to take dance classes in LA, I was fortunate enough to fall into some great teachers who gave me a a, a broad variety of movements. So I studied like kind of what's called contemporary now, wasn't called that then from two people called Bill and Jackie Landrum, married couple, they were fantastic. I took what was jazz. I I mean, the the terms are so strange, but jazz, so to speak, from uh, Michael Peters, who we know is a great choreographer, and his mentor, a guy named Lester Wilson, who kind of was the originator of a lot of movement that, that Michael was inspired by. And Lester also did a lot of things for some famous women, Diana Ross and a woman I never really saw, but her name was Lola Falana. She was a black woman, fabulous, sexy, and did a lot of movement. And along the lines of the Jack Cole, uh, Marilyn Monroe kind of dancing. Uh, But anyway, these were the teachers that I had. I took modern, I took ballet, I took some flamenco. I took, I didn't take any tap, a little bit of tap, but not much. Street was just starting to come in as I was kind of finishing my dancing and moving into directing and choreography. So I really didn't pick up too much of the street technique, just a very little bit of the early stuff as it was coming in. But by that time, I had sort of decided that, okay, I'm done doing the dancing thing. I really want to get into the choreography directing thing. It was analogous to I didn't really want to be an actor. I wanted to be a director. Hearing that answer for me anyway, like some things have really clicked into place now. I think as visual as dance is, hearing that your inspirations also came from theatre and film really, I think, now explained to me why some of your pieces are so memorable and theatrical Mm, and different to other things so thank you so much for that answer now it's like things are just falling into place now so that's incredible to hear so how did your career start out like sort of what age were you and and then the the pro the process to include some of the biggest names in entertainment so like from someone that started dancing as an early adult how did that then become the, the person then and the success that you are now Well, when I moved to Los Angeles, I only had a thousand dollars and that was back in the end of the seventies. So that was like everything I owned. And I was 
some friends of mine from Tucson gave me the name of a guy and a girl who lived out here who said they would put me up at their apartment because I had no place to stay. So I came out and it turned out that the, the guy was like, um, he was an ex-Vietnam vet, but he was like uh, an incredible screaming, screaming black queen and uh, <laughs> phenomenal, just phenomenal, outrageous. I, the most outrageous person I'd ever met in my life. And the girl was a beautiful uh, hooker who had white girl who had two French poodles and I, they were the sweetest people you would ever meet. The most generous. They gave me a corner of the living room in a one bedroom apartment. They didn't charge me any money. They only told me at certain times of the, when business was going on, I couldn't be <laughs> there. But <laughs> other than that, that was kind of, they were, they saved my life. And I moved here in January. Uh, I live in LA. I moved here in January and I auditioned for every single thing I could for nine months because I had made a vow to myself that if I couldn't become a dancer, if I couldn't support myself by dancing, it was new enough to me, I was going to get out of the business and try something else. It was September, I hadn't eaten in a couple days and a friend took me to have lunch. There was a sign that they were looking for waiters and I went up to apply. They said I had to come back in, in the evening shift and apply. So I went to take what I thought was my last dance class with Bill and Jackie Landrum, actually, and a phone call came and I went out to answer it. It was a choreographer who I had not met. He said, uh, listen, man, I'm doing a television special and I'm looking for one more guy. And uh, Lester Wilson, who I mentioned to you before, who I had taken some classes from, Lester Wilson mentioned your name and said, I should come watch you in class. Can I do that? I said, please. So he came, watched me, pulled me out of class and gave me my first job. And it was a TV special. And from there, I just started. I fell into the pattern. You know, I I went to a lot of auditions, of course, but uh, I began to know choreographers who at the time, that's how you predominantly got gigs. If you did a good job, they'd call you and see if you wanted to do the next one. So that's how I, that's what I did. I danced a lot. I toured the world with Shirley MacLaine. In fact, I came to Australia with Shirley MacLaine as one of my first jobs. Wow. And then I did a lot of television. I did a lot of commercials. And then I auditioned for Beat It. Oh, 
Hi, this is Michael Prince, studio engineer and producer with Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. When I auditioned for Beat It, do you want to hear that story? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, this is it, it kind of the whole thing is as I'm talking, I'm seeing it's making sense, but. I heard Michael Peters told me, you know, he, he said, I can't give you the gig, but you've got to come in and audition and Michael Jackson's going to decide who's going to be in it. And I said, that's fine, man. I don't mind. So having been an actor, I knew it was about gangs. So I came into the audition sort of dressed similar to what I look like in the video as the white gang leader with the knife fight guy. So um, I came in with like scruffy beard and my hair was a little greasy and I had an earring and I wore jeans and I had a little jacket and all the other guys came in like dancers. They had tight pants on and tank tops on and leg warmers on and little jazz shoes. So it's very hard to look like a gang guy in a tank top, you know, pink tank top and <laughs> Jazz shoes and leg warmers, you know. <laughs> well, it depends what kind of gang, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't think that was the kind of gang they were looking for, though. No, for this no. <laughs> <laughs> so I did notice that when I came in, before we even started dancing, that Michael Jackson's eyes kind of like went towards me and he spoke to Michael Peters and who's that guy? So luckily I could dance and I could back up the look. So I got that gig. And that led on to many other things, um, many other things. Choreographically, before I talk about Michael, that just the other people that I worked for were, uh, as I said, uh, I did a lot of commercials and videos for people, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, Paul McCartney, big people from the 80s, Donna Summer, Pat Benatar, Billy Joel. Oh my gosh, I directed a big benefit for AIDS that had in it Elton John, Billy Joel, Liza Minnelli, Barbara Streisand, uh, Patti LaBelle, Natalie Cole, Kenny Loggins, Winona Judd, Sheila E. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it all just opened up somehow with being in Beat It. I, being in Beat It, it just opened the door to everything for me. The calls just started coming in, even though I wasn't choreographing, you know, because of Michael Jackson now, and because of Madonna, but predominantly Michael Jackson being a guy, everybody in the rock world wanted to move. You know, Van Halen, they called me. I did two projects for Van Halen, Hot for Teacher and California Girls for David Lee Roth. They wanted to move. They weren't happy enough just standing behind their instruments and playing anymore. So Michael had opened up a whole new world of opportunity for people like myself and other young choreographers on the scene who didn't know what the heck they were going to do with their lives. They thought, oh, there's only Michael and Madonna and a very few others. And things started changing and really opened up. So yeah, he, he did a lot. He did so much. And since I'm just talking his praises, let me say one more thing. One of the other things he did in regards to as a, as a reaction from uh, short his short films was he brought not only dance back into the world because really since the Fred Astaire time there wasn't that much except for like I think there was like American Bandstand or something and men Soul Train or I can't remember when those happened but he brought dance back into the world and he got 
he destroyed the stigma of the male gay ballet dancer being the only kind of man who could dance and be accepted in society. And because of his short films, men started dancing and not being ashamed of it. And this is why I believe street dance evolved and hip hop and everything else that stemmed from that. I really believe that that MJ was the catalyst to freeing, liberating men who wanted to move and providing them the opportunity to say, yeah, it's okay. And maybe even you can get a gig doing it. So, yeah. Wow. I've got goosebumps just hearing that. That's brilliant historical context. Yeah. Thank you. Really true. Yeah. Before we continue talking about some of those Michael Jackson projects you worked on, I want to go back a little bit and hear about what your earliest memories are of Michael Jackson. Well, you know, I mean, I've always heard him on the radio, ABC and when he was a kid with the Jackson 5 and stuff, but that wasn't really my favorite kind of music. It was it came at a time when I was a little older than wanting to to hear just a young kid's voice singing. I liked the groove of all the music, of course, but I was kind of into a lot more of the hippie era music. And those were the people that I listened to, the Grateful Dead and those kinds of bands, you know. But I loved to move and I loved to dance. And so I listened to the Jackson 5 as collectively as I listened to other people that threw music out, including Prince at that time. And yeah, so I think that really my first real thought of thinking of Michael Jackson as somebody with a voice was in Billie Jean. Because once he left the family and started to make a statement as a solo artist, then to me, he got, he reached a different kind of validity. Otherwise, they were in a way comparable to the Osmonds, but funkier, you know, uh, a group, a family group who that's what they did. They were all clean cut and fun and had cartoons made up about them. And, you know, it just wasn't art to me. It wasn't, I'm an artist. And, uh, but when he started stepping into his own realm and started to explore finding his own voice and what that sound was, what the truth of his artistry was, beginning with Billie Jean, that's when I started taking notice. I guess when you sort of worked first with him in the Beat It time, um, he had, you know, he'd just come off a big tour with his brothers. He'd just launched, you know, the Thriller album, which was doing Gangbusters. And he had been in the media already at that point. Did you have any perceptions of Michael Jackson before getting to work with him? No, I didn't. And, you know, and he even though you say all of those things, there weren't people running around chasing Michael Jackson during those time periods. You know, we worked at just a big dance studio over in the valley over here, San Fernando Valley at a studio called Debbie Reynolds. And. He would come, I think he would only come with a guy who was kind of a, I want to say bodyguard, but he was a little older than a bodyguard. And he was kind of just a personal friend. His name was Bill Bray. Oh, yeah, the guy with the hat. Yeah, Bill. And so, you know, to come to these rehearsals, it would just be Michael and Bill Bray, you know. And then Bill Bray would wait out in the car or something, and it would just be Michael in the room with himself, with the Michael Peters and me and 
playing and working and hanging and being crazy. And, you know, uh, uh, yeah, it was it, it wasn't the Michael Jackson that we all sort of think of. You know, he was not he was not followed by stars. He was not there were not people standing out there to sign autographs, you know, and after Beat It, we went back to the same studio to do Thriller. And there were a few more people around. And this time, Michael was would be stopped by people in the hallways and going out to the car and stuff to sign autographs. But, yeah, it, it was after Beat It, really, when his star began to really rise and people started to notice him and really take take notice of him and, 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 and follow him and kind of begin the mobs began, you know, it was, you Mm. could, you could watch it through the ages, you know. Tell us a bit more about the beat it shoot. Do you remember the first thing Michael, you know, said to you on the shoot and what you guys talked about? Well, uh, no, I don't remember all that stuff. I mean, come on, this is like 8,000 years ago, (laughs) but you know, uh, you know, Michael, the reason Michael and I got along so well, I have to say, is I've never been somebody who's wanted to become super close friends with celebrities only because so many people try to do that. And it's usually because they want something. And I never wanted anything from Michael or any of the celebrities I worked with other than perhaps having the opportunity to create more things together, collaborate on more projects. But one of the reasons that we did work so well together is because we both had a lot of the similar senses of humor and we're both kind of kids at heart and we're both basically nice people. And so Michael would be so shy. He'd want to be in his trailer all the time. And I would go knock on the door and go in and I'd say, come on, let's walk outside. Let's walk in the middle of everything. And he'd go, I I don't know. And I'd say, no, come on, come on. If you don't like it, if it's horrible, we'll come back. Okay, okay. So then we'd go out and we'd hang out and we'd talk. And I'll give you one really cool story that happened uh, on Beaded Set. He and I were standing together waiting for one of the shots to be set up. I don't remember which one. And I'm talking to him and we're standing kind of over towards on the sidewalk near some buildings. And I noticed there's something dripping on his shoulder, but he has that red coat on. So I said, what's that dripping on your shoulder? And I put my finger in it and it was blood. And we looked up and here was this guy who had been shot or stabbed. I don't know, crawling from out of a window onto the fire escape and crawling back up, uh, crawling up one level of fire escape and crawling into another window, you know, and before we could even do anything. And it was crazy. We both just looked at each other and kind of, Oh my God, we are in downtown LA. You know, this is not just a short film. This is reality. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Exactly. (laughs) You got it. You got it. So that was an interesting adventure that happened, you know, but the rest was, you know, a typical film shoot, you know, you, you, you prep yourself, you do your work and you do your work and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again and you do 25 takes later and you're still doing the same thing. And every time you do it, you have to pretend like it's the first time. And uh, but, you know, it was great. And always dancing next to Michael was more than exciting. He just had this unbelievable electricity, I guess I could say, that just 
flowed, shot off his body. And you sort of were zapped by it if you were anywhere near it. And when you think about, and I'm, I'm being honest, I'm not being egocentric, I'm being honest. Now, he was not a trained, trained dancer. He trained some stuff with the Motown people, I'm sure. He knew tap well, and, uh, and, he, and he worked every Sunday with a bunch of street dancers as time went on and perfected his uh, whole personal street look, you know, choreography. But he was not a trained dancer. He didn't take jazz and ballet and all of those things uh, that the rest of us that, who surrounded him did in those videos. But if you look at him and you look at us, it's there's no difference. I mean, it's as if he has trained every single day for 25 years, like anybody else there. Phenomenal, just phenomenal. And that was the talk after we did the first run through of Thriller. I remember that everybody was shocked beyond belief that after just spending two days with Michael and teaching him Thriller with Michael Peters, we came in and we brought the rest of the cast. And after we just did the first rehearsal of it, people were just like screaming and freaking out. And I remember Michael, MJ, being so embarrassed like a little kid because everybody was going like, yes, yes, oh my God, yes, you know? And <laughs> he was just so shy and awkward and, you know, I was going up and punching him and hugging him and <laughs> that's a fun story. <laughs> I haven't thought about that for a while. Oh, that's awesome. We are just so excited to talk to you that we're going to probably jump forward and backwards in time, fast forward and rewind a little bit. I became a true mega fan from the song and the short film Black or White. And this was the lead single off a new album. It was a huge video and a concept of a short film that evolved as the, the film was being shot. Tell right. us about the dancing <laughs> featured in the video and how it's fairly unique compared to a lot of other MJ dancing and maybe some of the deeper meaning behind some of the moves because there's so much in this short film and in the, the choreography. Well, this is what happened. And now everybody remembers the story a certain way. So I have to preface it with that. But I'm 99 and 99 one hundredth percent sure this is what went down. <laughs> um, I came in to the first day that Michael was going to be shot by John. And I'm going to start this off by saying John Landis is a tremendous guy. He's a great director. He's funny. He's talented. So this is not in any way derogatory towards John Landis. And he shot Thriller. So he's brilliant, you know. But he... Michael called me in and I came into his trailer and he was freaking out, like not angry. He never did that. He was freaking out nervously. And he said, oh, my God, Vince, you got to help me. We, we can't do this. And I said, what? And he said, this is what John wants to do. He wants to shoot in honor of this uh, photographer who shot portraits of people only in gray corners. And he said he wants me to shoot, he wants to shoot the entire video of black or white with me in a corner with just gray walls. And that's it. And 
I appreciate that he thinks I'm interesting enough to do that, but I can't give that to my fans. I can't do that. I can't do that. I I don't know what to do. I'm so upset, you know? So I said, well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. So we talked about it and I said, okay, look, the song is called, you know, black or white. And you're talking about all kinds of nationalities and all people in the worlds. And I said, what if we took every little section and we put it somewhere else? You know, we, 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 we do something here and we do something over here and we do something over here. And it was supposed to start the way it started and in Africa with African dancers. And then it was Michael's off the African set and he's on a gray set. And that was it. That was the rest of the video. So I just started throwing out ideas. Mike started throwing out ideas. You know, I said, what if we have some Thai dancers come in? I don't know. And he goes, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. You know, what if we have American Indians, you know? Oh yeah. Great, great, great. Oh, what if we have a Russian cowboy? I mean, we just went crazy. The two of us sitting there together, we didn't know where the heck we were going to shoot these things, but we just knew that it was going to make a much more exciting piece. So John had, two other very interesting images in there. He'd already had the image of Michael walking against the fire and the Statue of Liberty. So that was how it was all going to end. But the middle whole part was just going to be this gray section. So MJ and I just kind of went to work and started putting all these, okay, on this section, this can happen. On this section, this can happen. On this section, this can happen. So we called John in and we talked to him and Michael was real honest and just said, I love, this is, this was Michael. I mean, You know, I've worked with so many people and so many people would have either just been too embarrassed or thought they were too hot to even talk to John Landis and had called somebody to fire him or something. I mean, that's how rude it is in Hollywood, can be in Hollywood. But um, this is Michael's, how sweet he is. He calls him in. He just goes, "Um, you know, John, I love everything that you came up with. But, you know, the truth is my fans expect so much more. And. And I want to give them so much more because without the fans, I'm nothing. And I love them all and they love me. And I, I just can't do this whole part in front of this gray. I I just can't do it. And he said, Vince and I have been sitting here working and I knew John already. So I felt comfortable with him. And Michael said, uh, you know, Vince and I have been sitting here and coming up with these different ideas and, you know, we wanted to just run them by you. And John looked at them and he said, yeah, they're fine. They look fine. That's the way John is. <laughs> okay, all right. Let's let's get some location people in here and find some places to shoot them. And uh, okay, see you guys later. And he walked out. And Michael just hugged me. You know, he was like, "Oh, thank you, thank you." I said, "No, listen, man, I'm with you a thousand percent." I I think he was just look. You have to look at it, Michael, this way. He believes in your talent, and for him, you could dance in a void, and you'd be spectacular. And the truth is, for any of your fans, you can stand and dance and sing in a void, and we wouldn't care. But I get it. You like to do something huge. You always tell me you want to do something the world has never seen before. This is what you've always said to me, and so let's do it. So then that's what that's how it began. We started breaking things down. We caught called casting directors and got dancers and got different things. And then Mike, uh, then John jumped in and, and said, uh, Oh, you know what, with that Russian dance, maybe we could put it in like a crystal ball and then go, go to a kid shaking the ball and stuff. So it was so sweet. You know, he just jumped into, into our world and, and the three of us put that thing together. 
And then for the second half, we knew that the second half was going to be very loose and we wanted to shoot it loose. We didn't want it controlled. Michael and I had gone into a studio and we had created um, a little dance library of moves. Um, A lot of the moves that Michael liked to do um, after I kind of got him into the crotch grab thing. Uh, he <laughs> he liked <laughs> to do that move, and, <laughs> and then he liked to do it from starting from his breastbone and moving his hand down, and, you know, anyway. And a lot of things we did in the bad tour. He loved the wind on him. Michael was one of those guys, you know, once he got, once he fell in love with something, he was just, like, addicted to it. Like, you know, the the light shining from below and the wind blowing from below. He loved that so much. So we put that in there and he and I walked around the set and with the production people and we said, let's put a car there. Let's put some trash cans there. Let's put a pile of water over there. And then he and I just walked through it before we shot it and said, "Okay, when you come to this part, do this. When you come to this part, do something like this. When you come to this part, just do whatever you want to do. When you come to the car, jump up on top of the car and dance on the top of the car for a while and, uh, you know, do what you want to do. And you're going to wind up coming over to this water and do whatever you want to do until you fall down on your knees in front of the water. And eventually you're going to get up and move and morph into a panther, black panther. And that's how it worked. I mean, we did it. It was amazing. It was one of the few times Michael has ever tried to do improv except for that little crazy one moment in the middle of Smooth Criminal. But, um, you know, I think that he trusted John, certainly, and he really trusted me. And, you know, when when Mike selected someone to work with, he pretty much put his trust in you and he listened to you, you know. And I just always tried to act as a mirror and say, this is what I see and I just want to throw it back to you and it's your choice, whichever way you want to go, but I'm just going to throw this back to you. So anyway, very long story. I'm sorry if I was too long. That was black. No such thing as being too long. Thank you. And that that was great hearing that story as well, because we've had um, Kevin Stay on the show before, who I think you're a... a oh, yeah. Kevin was yeah. in it. Yeah. Yeah, he was in it. And he um, his his version of the story is basically the same as yours. So. <laughs> but, oh, um, good. That was some great depth. Thank you. Thank you. I, I just want to dig a tiny bit deeper with and ask, like, did Michael sort of discuss putting into the choreography, any dance moves with like sort of meaning, like I don't want to say political meaning, but sort of, uh, or racial things, but obviously the video has such a strong message. How did he sort of put the message into some of the moves or some of the choreography? I mean, we didn't put the message into the choreography. We put the message into the casting, you know, I mean, We started with all blacks in Africa. We went to Asians in Thailand. I can't remember, honestly, the sequence we went to. We went to the the girl from Bollywood uh, in that section. So we were incorporating Asia uh, in that aspect. We went to the American Indians and we wanted to incorporate them. And we went to Russia. And then we went to all the kids on the sidewalk, American kids on the sidewalk. We did it that way, you know. We... We thought that black or white meant every race possible. And rather than do it in the movement, and then I created the movement 
to be suitable to each of those uh, ethnicities that we, you know, came up with. So, and the way Michael and I worked choreographically is pretty much like I would choreograph everything and leave pockets for Michael to uh, do his own thing. And then he, so he would do my work with everybody and then he would do his own little thing and then my work and then his own little thing. That was the best way that we found to work. And he loved to try new, new choreography. He didn't want to just do his own stuff all the time. So that was great. And every once in a while, you know, he would change like a beat or an accent in something that I had created uh, because he always said, um, uh, if he didn't feel it exactly on the beat that he wanted to feel it on, he'd say, let's move it over to this beat because you have to feel it. You have to feel it. I said, okay, Michael, let's feel it. <laughs> so we danced and we did it. We put it on all these beats until we both felt it. <laughs> he was great. He was so much fun to work with. God. A man who was arguably touched more hearts than any other person before him or that will come after him through the universal language of music and humanitarian efforts. He was a blessing to us all. The magic of his many crafts is permanently emblazoned in our cultural fabric. The air was sucked out of the day when you passed away, Mike. I'm writing a song to be able to breathe again. Uh, yeah, ha, you're the king of pop. Whether the haters want to give you peace or not, who needs their props? Never your legacies forgot. When I heard the news, man, I really and truly had to breathe and stop. Like breathing was not important with everything we lost. And it's impossible to measure all the grief we got. Watching the BET Awards with Jamie the Fox. I can't believe we got through it. Indeed, it's not easy to mourn on live TV when everyone's feeling shocked. And God bless Janet Jackson for the speech she dropped. MJ's a legend and icon but family to you i'm sending all my love and prayers and positive energy to you i know the relatives in the big homie quincy has got to be mourning your brother daily sending tears to god i wish you peace and not pain hope it eases up hey let's celebrate this life man billy genius Baby, now you're back home, now you're at home, they will leave you alone, they will leave you alone. Baby, now you're back home, now you're at home, they will leave you alone. Baby, now you're back home, now you're at home, they will leave you alone, say they will leave you alone. Baby, now you're back home, now you're at home, I hope that you find some peace for yourself. Don't worry about the comeback, anyway, what's that? You never stop being a talented one that inspired us all black, white, brown, we're all wearing one hat. And of course, one sparkling love. You're so full of magic and love. I think that we gotta get some back. Come back to us. Your sparrow would not believe us. Smoke criminal and dirty Diana. We had a friend like Ben. No strangers in Moscow, you befriend us. And no matter if you're black or white, it's what inside that matters. You taught us to save the planet Earth song and heal the globe. AKA, heal the world. Baby, you are not alone. My mama called me on the phone. She caught me in the zone. Holding back the years like a simply red song. Holding back the tears. How could you be dead and gone? When somebody hears, thriller come on. It's clear that you influence us all. Style, vibe, tone. I look at the sky and now know we get that cause he lives on Michael Jackson Baby now you're back home Now you're at home They will leave you alone They will leave you alone Baby now you're back home Now you're at home They will leave you alone Baby now you're back home Now you're at home They will leave you alone Say they will leave you alone Baby now you're back home Now you're at home I hope that you'll find some peace for your soul Baby now you're back home 
you're at home They will leave you alone They will leave you alone Baby, now you're back home Now you're at home They will leave you alone Baby, now you're back home Now you're at home They will leave you alone Say they will leave you alone Baby, now you're back home Now you're at home I hope that you find some peace for your soul I love you I really do. You have to know that I love you so much. Really. From the bottom of my heart. Hey, this is Taj Jackson of 3T, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Black or White was a song that went number one, and is certainly one of Michael's biggest hits of his career. What What is it like as a collaborator sitting back and watching that video and that song hit number one that you were a big part of? What does that feel like? You know, honestly... And I don't mean this humbly. I just mean this kind of honestly. It's part of my own insecurity, I guess. I love the process more than the result. I like going back after a while and looking at something that I've created and being appreciative for having had the opportunity to be as creative as I was allowed to be, uh, having that much voice. But I don't really think about the result of things. I only have to trust my instinct as an artist and believe that what's happening at the moment in the pre-creation process, the actual physical creation process, and then the part where you know it's going to be extended to the audience, whether that be through film or through a tour or through theater or whatever, those are the things that I love. Those are the things that feed me as an artist. What happens after that, it's political, it's personal, it has nothing to do with me anymore. You know, it's left my voice. It's it's gone now. It belongs to the performers. It belongs to the universe and it belongs to the people that are receiving it. And it's however they perceive it. So I'm just always grateful that I seem to have opportunities that afford me the chance for a lot of people to see my work. And I'm just really grateful about that. I never think if they're going to like it or hate it, I, I can't let that sort of guide my art, my artistry. I have to just trust my instincts, you know, so. Well, on that note with the black or white release, obviously the fan community and, and, and music lovers just, absolutely love that that song in that film and no they didn't no that's not true what happened with that was just the opposite in fact that was the first time because of that last section that michael that was the first time that the fans and people and the press had backlashed him and um you know i came into the trailer one morning and he was crying because all of this bad press and all of these people who wanted to consider Michael this Peter Pan who never was going to grow up. And all of a sudden, they saw him as this guy who had a political voice and was throwing a trash can through a Nazi swastika, you know, Mm. and they didn't want to accept that, Michael. And he was really actually heartbroken and crying and saying to me, how can people think this about me? You know, I mean, I didn't say anything mean. I I said what I thought was true and what I think other people should believe, you know, and he said, I believe there should be peace in the world. I I believe that people shouldn't be racist like that. I I think this is important message, you know? So, you know, I'm, I'm just disagreeing with you. I mean, yes, it was successful, but if you remember what happened is they had to take that last part off. 
you know was uh i didn't realize i didn't realize that some fans had backlash as well i i we were going to ask about the media backlash and just me personally as i don't know if i was the target audience like a young teenage boy uh-huh. you know like one of those kids on the sidewalk uh, in the video i i loved it uh, even mm-hmm. the ending i maybe didn't understand it but Damn, I loved it, and that blew me away. So I, I definitely didn't have a problem with it. Yeah, I just remember him, and I don't know. I mean, I, I can't, like, you know, write a term paper on it, but, um, you know, I just remember him telling me that the press and his fans, so many of his fans had, you know, written him and told him, you know, why would you do something like that? And, you know, how could you do that? And, you know, it, he was very, very... He was such a sensitive man, you know, he was very Mm. disturbed and truly he was animated by his love for the fans that every time we did something, he would always preface it with, I want you to create something. I want us to create something that the world has never seen before. And I want us to know that we're doing it for the fans. So that was just his philosophy. When I became a Michael Jackson fan, I remember Smooth Criminal being the short film that I was watching the most and going back to see the most. It, in my opinion, it's an absolute masterpiece. And, and I know Michael said during his career as well that it was the short film that he received probably the most comments about, most positive feedback about. Yeah. Talk to us about that process and, and what it was like making such a brilliant masterpiece of film. Well, it was so interesting because it was one of the first times really that I'd ever not worked with the, well, with Michael or with any celebrity where I was left to do such a huge project. Um, Originally, I was supposed to not only conceive it and choreograph it, but direct it. Later, what happened towards the end when it became part of Moonwalker, Moonwalker was going to become a feature film, did become a feature film. And so they had to bring in a director from the union, the DGA, and he wound up directing uh, that video. So, but he was very uh, appreciative of all the work that I had done and the storyboards I had done in the visual video, video at that time, recordings that I had made and cut together. And, you know, I had a visual storyboard that he almost followed shot for shot for shot. So his name is Colin Chilvers and he was a great man, is a great man. I don't know what he's doing now, but Michael called me up one day and Funny story. I've said it a thousand times, but I'll say it again. I'm sitting at home and it was nighttime. The phone rings and and I hear this voice and he goes, hi, is Vincent there? I said, who's this? It's Michael. (laughs) It's Michael. I said, it's not Michael. Who is this? No, really, it's Michael. It's Michael Jackson. I said, get the fuck out of here. This is not Michael Jackson. You know, and he goes, yeah, it is, Vincent. It's really me. It's Michael Jackson. I said, if you don't get the fuck off this phone right now, I'm going to hang up on you. He started laughing. When he started laughing, I knew it was him, right? I said, oh, my God, Michael, I'm so sorry. I never would have used the word fuck, man. (laughs) He starts laughing more, you know. He starts laughing more. So he goes, are you busy right now? He asked me to come over to his recording studio, which was around the corner where I lived, fortunately. So I went over and he had the song, he was playing it, but it only had Annie, are you okay? Annie, are you okay? You okay, Annie? And the music, it didn't have any other lyrics. So we talked for a while, he kept playing it. What do you think of it? I said, I love it, man, it's great, really inspiring. So we talked for a long time and about other things too, hung out for a while and so I was gonna leave and he said, take it with you. I think it was a cassette at that time. Take it with you and listen to it and let the music tell you what it wants to be. 
And I said, I'm so confused, Mike. I said, what do you, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to dance in this video or what? You know, this short film. And he said, no, man, I want you to conceive it. And I want you to choreograph it. And I want you to direct it. Now, I had done Beat It and Thriller with him. And that was it. So I was kind of floored and a little blown away. But, well, very blown away. But I went home for a week and I thought about it, I thought about it, I thought about it. And I called him up and I said, okay, this is what, this is kind of what I see. Now, I knew Michael loved old film and I knew he loved that kind of era. So, and I knew he was a huge fan of Fred Astaire. So, but I was not honestly, and I, I want to be really honest about this. People say, oh, you took it from the bandwagon. I really don't believe that I took it from the bandwagon. I, and I don't believe, I mean, Michael may have thought about the white suit and that white hat from Fred Astaire, but we weren't really even making it an homage to Fred Astaire. We were, I was not thinking about that physically or anything. I just created the piece. So what happened was Michael was in the studio recording his, uh, his album and he found it and he really couldn't leave. So he said, look, I just want you to cast it. I'm going to give you a stage on half the stage. They'll build the set on the other half. They'll build you a dance floor and give you a great sound system and give you a video camera. You create it, shoot it, come see me. Let's look at the stuff. Let's talk about it. And that's just, that's how we'll work. So that's basically how I worked. And I would create it. I would give everybody a dance class and create, and then I would move them over to the set. I turned them all from dancers to actors. I made them come up with a biography of who they were as this character. I made them come up with names. When they walked onto the set, they weren't allowed to just walk onto the set. They had to walk through that green door. And from the moment they walked into that green door, they were only allowed to dress themselves as the character. Once, the, once we were done rehearsing, they were allowed to walk out the green door. And as soon as they walked out the green door, they were back to who they were as dancers. So that was kind of how I got them to be actors. And I thought that was really important for this story. So I would shoot everything and I would go and see Michael at his Havenhurst house. And we would sit and watch everything. And, and he would always wind up saying to me, I think you need more people, don't you? Because it would start out <laughs> at 10. And I would say, yeah. And so he'd go, well, why don't you get 10 more people? Okay, cool. So I'd hire 10 more people. Then I'd come back and he'd go, you know, I have a friend, Jeffrey Daniels, and he's a street dancer and he's really good. And, you know, I, I was thinking maybe if you could bring him in with maybe five of his guys or something, that would be really cool. I was like, great. So now we're up to like 15 then I'm shooting and we're doing more stuff. And then he goes, wouldn't you like to have a second story on that place? And I said, yeah, I'd love to have a second story. And I'd love to have a stairway that floats down so that you can come down to the floor. He goes, I love that. I love that. I love that. Tell them that's what you want. So told them that's what I want. And I think you need 10 more dancers. I'm like, really? Yeah, get 10 more dancers. By the end, I think we had like 60 dancers altogether. I can't even remember. But and also what was wonderful was he would say, Look, if you want to, if you think in the musical break or something, we need more music or any way you want to redesign this. So we need more music. Just talk to me about it and let's do it. So, I mean, if you think about it, the, the, the music, well, the short film is 10 minutes long and the song is only what, four minutes long or something. So we added all that extra minute, maybe it's four and a half minutes song, but we added all that extra music just for the short film. So that's how I would work. And then eventually when I had the whole thing down, then Michael and I went into a studio and we started playing and worked him through every single section that he had to do with everybody and then gave him time to create all of his own solitary moments. 
Yeah. And then I'd put him in the room and we'd all rehearse together and go step by step. And if something felt uncomfortable or he had great suggestions, which he always had, then we'd change it. But basically it was the first opportunity that anybody had given me on that huge a scale to create something as important as that work. And, you know, to be with an artist who allows your imagination to just go wild is something that you can never, ever, ever um, appreciate as much as you wish you could. You know, I mean, I love this man beyond loving anybody, but I could still love him more. I mean, the fact that I said crazy shit like, uh, okay, how about if you flip a coin and it goes across the room and lands in the jukebox and that's how the music starts? And he was like, yeah, I love that. I love that. You know, other people would have said to me, you're crazy, man. Are you kidding? I don't have the money for that. Or, you're nuts, you know, but not with Michael. Anything I came up with, the lean, when I came up with the lean, he was like, yes, yes. Oh my gosh, we got to do that. We got to do that. And that kind of became like the the image of the entire short film is that lean, you know, so yeah. It was a dream project. It was a dream project on many levels. I'll tell you two more things, three more little things that were wonderful. One was that it was so much fun. Big celebrities came in all the time to watch because, you know, that they were all his friends. So Elizabeth Taylor showed up one day and hung out. Jimmy Stewart, he was so old, but he came in and he hung out. He was great. And Fred Astaire's choreographer, whose name is Hermes Pan, came in and hung out with us one afternoon. And he said to Michael and me the words that were, the best words that anyone could have spoken. He said, if Fred were here, he would love this. Michael and I just had the biggest faces on, biggest smiles on our faces, like two little kids at Christmas time or something. It was, it was amazing, you know, but that was one thing. The second thing is in film, the producers rarely let dancers and sometimes actors, but always dancers, they keep them away from the room where they show the dailies. Now, just if your audience doesn't know, when you shoot something, it goes to be printed. And then the next day they show it to the producers and the, the director and the director of photography so that if there's been any mistakes, they can come back and fix it when we shoot during the next day. So we never get to see that. But Michael insisted that all the dancers and him and you know everybody who wanted to craft services, the people on the food, anybody could come down to the room and as long as the room fit everybody, we could all watch. So every single day, besides shooting this incredible short film, we had a monster party where everybody would get up and scream for each other. You know, it was like a church meeting or something in the South. People were screaming, go, go, you go, girl, get it. Oh, yeah, Michael, you got it, girl, go, go. Everybody screaming, you know. <laughs> and then we would go back down to the stage and we would shoot again, you know. And it was it was great. And that crazy little section where they're all like, Annie, are you OK? Annie, are you OK? In the middle of it and it explodes. I used to give them as a director acting exercises, improv exercises. And one of them was just that, OK, you're a big mass of people and you're you're. Body language is about confusion and pain and searching. And that's what it's about. And just see what happens. Well, we just ran the cameras and. When Michael saw what we did, even though the first time we did it, everybody was in rehearsal clothes, you know, it was such a unique experience for him. He had never taken acting class. He had never done anything like that. So when he did this improv with all these kids or all these bodies around him, these artists and saw how everybody was as into it as he was, you know, 
he just, it blew him away. And he said to us all, we got to shoot that. We got to shoot that tomorrow. That's something that the world has never seen. I want that in this. I want that in this short film. We've got to do it. We've got to do it. So we came back and that's why that crazy thing is in there. It had nothing to do with the, 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 the short film at all. It was just that Michael loved it and he wanted it in the middle. So anyway, those are three things about Smooth Criminal. Oh my God. I've got goosebumps. I'm on, <laughs> I'm on the floor. I'm on the floor. Wow. I've melted, melted into a puddle.
Hi, this is Kevin Stade, dancer and associate choreographer for Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. We spoke to Kevin Stay a little bit about the MTV 10th anniversary show, but we've got to speak to you about it as well because that Will You Be There performance is absolutely timeless choreography, oh. just incredible oh. staging. And we've oh. got to ask about this, this artwork, the imagery in the artwork, the choreography, the symbolism. Talk to us about that piece and your inspiration for that piece, please. Well, Michael's manager at that time, Sandy Gallen, called me and said, three people have been chosen to represent MTV's 10th anniversary, Madonna, George Michael, and Michael Jackson. And Michael wants you to conceive and direct something that he can do live that nobody has, you know, that's new and fresh. So he liked to put I sat with him and, you know, like we did when we put the Super Bowl together, he liked to smash rhythms and energies against one another. So he thought that black or white smashed up against will you be there would be a beautiful contrast and would work very well. And so did I. So I created black or white, of course, and we brought back all those things that in a way it was our way of thumbing our nose at people who had said bad things about him by bringing back the car with all the graffiti all over. <laughs> we were just being bad. And by having Slash throw his guitar through the window at the end, we thought, you know what? That's just like say, look, we're happy with what we did and we're doing it again. So too bad. <laughs> but anyway, and then, then we go into the second piece. And he didn't talk to me too much about that piece at all. He just said, you know, just do whatever you want. Make it beautiful. And I said, okay, I don't know where I'm going to go, but let me think about it and I'll tell you. And he said, okay. And, you know, I just thought it was such a beautiful song. And I just thought at that point in his career that I knew people who were four years old and I knew people who were 85 years old and they all loved Michael Jackson. And I thought, we never see that, you know, we, we usually see people who are in that kind of teenage MTV video range in all of his short films. So I really want to bring in this whole universe of people who are really his fans. These are the people that love him. And so that's how it kind of began for me. I started auditioning people. I didn't know where I was going to go with it. And, and I got enough people in all the different age groups and I brought in a costume designer and she said, well, why don't we kind of make this a little off center? And I said, yeah, I'm fine with that. You know, let's do it. So she came up with these ideas of these turbans and these every, putting everybody in beige and all these outfits. And I loved it. And then I put him in the front with some dancers and I did some symbolism. You know, I brought in a globe at one point, which I later used in a big form in Super Bowl. But again, I was saying I wanted to say that you know, this is a good man and people love him. All kinds of people love him everywhere. And so I introduced that globe for a second as that moment. And then this is a hard thing for me to say, but because I'm not really a religious man, I'm a spiritual man, but I'm not a religious man. I, I've studied religions uh, emphatically, but I believe that I live a very spiritual life, but not one that's connected to any specific religion. But for some people, the Bible represents religion in a great sense. And so all the time that I met Michael, I never believed, and I know this will sound corny to a lot of people, but I don't care. It's my truth. 
I never really met anybody that to me embodied as many of the characteristics of Jesus Christ, if this man was a man, than Michael Jackson. Kindness, patience, love, understanding, generosity. I could go on and on. So in a way, I wanted to to just say that this is a good man. This is a in a way, a holy man. This is a really good man. And at the end, I'm getting teary-eyed now, but at the end, you know, I wanted to also include the, the people that can't speak. I wanted to include the deaf community. And so I brought the little boy in to do it. And I just thought that Michael was a vulnerable soul and I wanted the world to see him protected. And so I brought this model named Angela Ice in on wings and ended it with him wrapped in her arms. So that was kind of, that's what I did. Oh my God. My hair, wow. like my, the hair on my arms is like standing on end. <laughs> oh, wow. So much depth to that song and that performance. And it's just absolutely timeless art. Thank you. There needs to be books written about that. <laughs> it does. I remember Kevin talking about it and how some of the poses that you got people to do were like the old religious icon paintings that used to have as little cards in your Absolutely. In your, holy yeah. cards. Yeah, Catholic the holy, holy cards. cards. Yeah. yeah. They were. And until, you know, I'd never sort of put that together with such an obscure little thing. Oh. But you can see it. Now, or I think we could always feel it, but we never knew sort of where it had come from. Yeah, I, I'm a research fanatic, you know, and before I did that, I, I got a lot of books and I can't, I, I don't, I think it was pre-internet time actually, but I got a lot of books out and I just went through these religious iconic images of all different religions and I tried to incorporate them in different places and, you know, whether it was about the forehead and the mouth and the chakras or whether it came from the Catholic side or from the Eastern side of religion. And um, I just felt that, you know, honestly, for me, Michael was this kind of artist. He was really a really good man. And I just wanted to represent that somehow. So, you know, again, I never really try to hit people over the head with images. I look at things and I don't know if they're going to be used and, and then stuff comes out and people say, oh, what did you mean by that? What did you mean by that? And I'm like, I have no idea. I just thought it was <laughs> interesting. But when I think like now you're asking me these questions and making me really reflect upon it. And I guess I did. They did come into my head without me thinking about them much more subconsciously than I realized. But I do a lot of research homework on every single project I did what do, whether it's small or big and so obviously things do live in your head. It's just how they come through your own mental mechanism and how you spit them out, I guess, into the universe. Incredible. Well, we know you are short on time. We have been so blessed to have you for as long as we have already. But my God, we've got to get you back one day. There's so many things to ask you about other big, big Michael events and things like that. But we'll finish sure. up with a question Two, probably like two questions. One, we okay. ask every special guest we ever have on the show. And I know you've given incredible answer to that, what we just discussed then, and it might be something very similar. 
but a question we ask everyone is how should Michael be remembered? I think Michael should be remembered with a smile on his face. That's it. And what a smile it was. Yeah. That's how I see him. I always see him with a smile on his face, you know? A smile. Yeah. You know, if you Google the most beautiful smile in the world, it's Michael's uh-huh. picture that comes up. Honest to God. Honest to God. <laughs> yeah. Go to Google Images and type it in. You see 20 pictures of Michael. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's, well, it's that's an incredible how I thing. think of him. You know, I think of him as this happy guy who was happy to have had the chance, like me, to do what he wanted to do and have this success. And I know how hard it was for him, but I... For all the years that I knew him, he always had a smile. He always had a smile.
This is Tito Jackson, and it's Tito time. Thanks for listening to the MJ cast. Before we say goodbye to you, mm-hmm. could you tell – well, I wanted to ask one thing, the, your sure. your film, The Man Behind the Throne. Do you mm-hmm. know if there's any plans underway for a wider release like Netflix documentary? Because yeah. I'm looking forward to paying to see that film one day. Well, I wish there were, but the situation is that this was produced by a director from Swedish television. Mm-hmm. And they had a limited budget. Obviously, it was a documentary. And the sad state of affairs is that Michael and Madonna are both sort of owned by their record companies. And those record companies don't really care whether it's a documentary and you have no money or whether it's a $300 billion feature film. They charge you the same for everything to show any material that's related to Michael or Madonna. And because unfortunately, or fortunately for me in the film, there is material with Michael and Madonna. If this television station, it used to be an hour and a half and it had a lot more stuff in it, but they had to bring it down to an hour. This was another thing that Warners and Sony, Sony made them do, but they're under contract that they could only use it as a television program and that they could use it in film festivals Uh, but it could be on television programs all over the world, but they weren't allowed to make it bigger. If they wanted to make it bigger and if they wanted to make it into a feature, I think they were asking like something for like a million dollars in royalties. And, you know, a little Swedish television station doing a documentary doesn't have that kind of money, you know. So sadly, no. But if have you ever seen it? No, we. I remember. Well, think back in season one, we spoke about it because I think even there was was there a fundraising like Kickstarter kind of thing. Yes. What happened was this director was trying to get money to be able to make it into a feature, and she never got the money that she needed. I didn't direct it. It's only about me. I, you know, I kept out of it, and it, it was this director's work. And I, I think it's interesting. It's certainly. You certainly learn about me. <laughs> I mean, all the good and you see a lot of good and the bad. I let them just show anything they wanted. But I think that the important part of the film is it's the feedback that I've gotten from young artists around the world is that it's very inspirational and that it lets them know that it's not all easy as easy as it looks and that you do have to continue to push and in a sense fight every step of the way it's not just handed to you time and time and time again it's always seems to start from the beginning and you have to prove yourself 
always. And that's just the nature of the business. And if you can't do that, you don't belong in this business. But that's never going to change. And, and I think a lot of young artists are inspired by this film, this documentary, because they see me who has become successful. And I'm in a situation that's quite difficult for me with a company that's not supportive of me. So they get to see for the first time that, oh, it's not all a bed of roses. There are problems. And even somebody who is as successful as Vincent has to go through them. So you know what? I can go through them. And that's what makes me proud about this film. Just to wrap things up, what is next for Vincent Patterson? It's interesting. Right now, there's like 10 very cool projects floating around my head. Four of the big ones are incredible new musicals that I'm very excited about directing, live theater. I have some great musicals that have happened in the last couple of years. I directed Evita in Vienna and it was supposed to run for three months and it was all sold out and ran for 10 months. So that was great. The musical cabaret I directed and choreographed in Berlin is the first original version of the musical cabaret in Berlin and it's been running for 14 years. So now I'm up for, um, as soon as these pieces are finished, four fantastic musicals, including one with Darren Hayes from Savage Garden. Oh, no well. way! <laughs> yeah, and I can't oh, talk about that. Yeah, can't he talk can't about talk about it either. He, he drops little hints and says what he's, <laughs> that, he's, that he's working on something. Darren uh, was on our show in season one. He's a oh. big Michael fan, of course. And, you uh-huh. know, the, ba- the bad tour was, you know, he his saw the bad awakening tour, which, moment. Yeah. I know. Oh, wow. Okay. There's another piece of the puzzle clipped into place. It's truly. Well, yeah, he called me and first he emailed me and said, you know, I'm such a fan and blah, blah, blah. And I wrote back, I said, this is crazy. I'm a fan, you know, let's, let's get together. And we got together and he's been writing this really great musical that I'm so inspired about and he wants me to direct it. And, uh, so I will do that. And so that's coming up within the next couple of years. Musicals take a while. But I think I'm going to direct my first feature. I've been offered a lot of features and I keep turning them down. They don't, they don't excite me. I have to be inspired. I have to be scared. And I have to feel like I can really also give something to myself. I really like this script and I am beginning to believe that I could do a really interesting job with it. So that's what I think is going to be the big project that's going to happen probably in January. Yeah. So other than that, I'm, I'm teaching some workshops around the country. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm doing that. And I'm making some personal appearances in a couple places. I'm probably going to Paris again and doing a Michael Jackson weekend. These are very new thing for me, but I found that what's, what I love is that being one degree of separation away from Michael makes his fans feel like they're with him or they've touched him or they've met him. And I feel so fortunate to give them that opportunity because I see how many people love him to death. And they, if I give them a hug, I know that they feel like, oh my gosh, you know, he gave Michael a hug and now he's giving me a hug. So I'm getting a hug from <laughs> Michael. And it's just so thrilling, you know, and, and also to have people appreciative of what I've done with him and, and my other work. And, you know, I'm, I'm just a grateful guy. So that that's what's coming up. Well, we are 
so grateful that we've had the opportunity to hear your story, your incredible experiences. We do hope that you've had a good time and that you might come back because we want to ask you about the bad tour, the Super Bowl and blood on the dance floor. So many more things in the future. If you would grace us with your time in the future again, that would be amazing. Um, Okay. And where, where can people find you online, Vincent, as well? At my website, for one thing, which is Vincent Patterson. My last name has one T, P-A-T-E-R-S-O-N.com. And I have a lot of video work there and photos there and things like that. And also uh, email address. If anybody wants to reach me, they're more than welcome. And I'm on Facebook. So those are two places where... I get information and letters and all kinds of wonderful things from people all over the world. Awesome. That's that's fantastic. Well, thank you very much again for joining us, Vincent. It's uh, been an honor. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Great. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Vincent Patterson, and we are so proud to have been able to bring that incredible discussion to you and just the tip of the iceberg of amazing stories. Absolutely. I just really enjoyed his incredible, incredible stories. And we've got heaps more questions to ask him too. Like I'm looking at our question list here on OneNote right now and we got through about half of what we actually wanted to discuss. So I hope in the future we can have Vincent back on for another episode, a great part two. That would be very cool indeed. But yeah, I think what a great way to celebrate Michael Jackson's birthday, uh, hearing amazing stories like that. And we hope that you guys out there listening are also having a wonderful celebration for Michael's birthday this year. Yeah, absolutely. I sure will be. I'm thinking about watching Moonwalker actually this year. I usually watch one sort of Michael thing on his birthday per year. And uh, I'm in a Moonwalker mood. So, of course, we played a number of Michael Jackson tributes in this episode for you to enjoy. And we started off with the Eric Hudson remix of one of my favorite MJ little gems out there, For All Time. We followed that with a song called Peace for Your Soul. That was by Cyrano Esquire. Great MJ tribute there, different flavor for you. We ended with a beautiful orchestral medley by none other than the London Symphony Orchestra. Then we follow that up with the beautiful tribute song, Home, from Michael's very own sister, Latoya Jackson. One of my favorite MJ tributes. It's a really beautiful song. And the video and the link for that video to buy is over in the show notes for iTunes. We hope you enjoyed those and don't forget you can head over to Twitter to vote for your favorite song played in our music poll. 
That's right. And well, that's a, a wrap for our episode. What are you planning on doing today, Q? I talked about watching Moonwalker. Are you going to enjoy any Michael stuff? I um, think I'll be working all day, so I'm probably not going to have a chance, but I had a really awesome time at the little MJ birthday charity lunch in Perth on the weekend with an awesome group of people. And uh, I can talk about that more in the next regular episode. Sounds good. Cool. Well, you have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the MJ cast and happy birthday, Michael Jackson. Go get your Michael on. Keep Michaeling. Jay Cast.